We will be having our monthly uh, men's prayer breakfast coming up a week from Saturday on the, what is that, the 17th, 18th of uh, whatever that Saturday is, a week from Saturday. So tomorrow's going to be, today's the 6th, 17th. Uh, So that'll be 7.30 for the men's prayer breakfast, and then we'll have our deacons meeting following that. Also, on December the 9th, that's when we'll have our annual church uh, sort of Thanksgiving and Christmas luncheon uh, following the morning worship service. So plan on that. Get that on your calendars, and we'll be telling you some more things about that as, uh, as we go forward. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Uh, Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure that they are spiritually prepared for uh, our study of the Word tonight, our time of uh, fellowship and communion with God, enjoying our relationship with Him, and time with each other as we focus on the Word and are encouraged and strengthened in the Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, just such a wonderful privilege to come together as bodies of believers in this church age with all the remarkable assets that you've given us and the uniqueness that we have in the body of Christ and our identification with him, that we are seated with him in the heavenlies. That is our position and coming to understand the significance of that in this life is just just tremendous. How exciting it is to learn about you and to worship you and to talk about all the wonderful things that you have done in our life and to share uh, our thanksgiving and our joy at, and our walk with you. Father, we pray tonight for our nation. We continue to pray for our president. We pray for those in leadership. We pray as the results come in on this election night, Uh, whichever way they go, that we may remember that you are our hope, you are our foundation, you are our solid rock, and that though it is important to elect good leaders and to have good leaders in a nation, that ultimately the direction and the oversight of history is from you. But, Father, we do pray that you would be gracious and merciful to us and that at this night that there would not be an election that would further the uh, plans of the enemy and those hostile to Christianity and those hostile to establishment principles of Scripture, and that we might be able to hold forth against those forces who seek to destroy the freedom of this nation. Father, we pray for us as we focus on you and your word tonight that we might be strengthened and encouraged as we think about all that you have provided for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to continue in our study of worship. Now, this study has taken a lot longer than I anticipated, but that's because 
I got into this and started doing a lot of study in an area that I have not studied that deeply or from this perspective before. And so it's taken longer. I've been doing a tremendous amount of uh, research and reading and studying along the way. And so I think that you have benefited from that. And it's taken us a lot longer. But this is an area that I think is uh, something that takes all of us to another level of appreciation in terms of our own personal walk with the Lord, our own personal relationship with Him. And it should be driving us to think more uh, about our own personal spiritual life and our own personal communion or fellowship with God. And that the patterns that we're studying in the Old Testament, even though it may be in the Old Testament that we're studying, are not patterns that are uh, lost once Jesus comes, but they're fulfilled in Christ. And so we see something that that continues. A lot of the some of the details change. We're not under the law anymore. We're not going to a central sanctuary, central temple. A number of other things are not true for today, but the underlying principles that are reflected here are certainly part of what what we're going through. So tonight what we're going to look at is the worship of a redeemed people. As I pointed out in the previous couple of lessons, as we get into Exodus and there's an expansion of what worship is as God calls the calls his people to a higher level of relationship commitment to him in Exodus 19 I talked about the 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 visual imagery there that this is uh, God shows up the dark clouds and lightning and thunder and earthquakes and all of this and then the giving of the law and then the com- statement of their commitment to obey him that's given both in chapter 19 and again in chapter 23, and that this is designed to bring them to this point where they are entering into and accepting this covenant with God that forms the foundation of their, uh, of their walk with him. And it's going to be grounded in the, this worship in a, the tabernacle and then the temple. At the very center of this is a reminder to them from God that he says to them, and I'm quoting from the New Testament because there it's applied to us, but this is stated several times in the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. God says, be holy for I am holy. Now, Peter takes that brings that quote into the New Testament, which means it's just as significant for us as it was for uh, Israel in the Old Testament. And in fact, as he introduces it, Peter says in verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And this is something that I think is a real challenge to modern 20th and 21st century Christians because we live in a world that became secularized in the 19th century um, where you had this distinction between what is secular and what is religious and we've all been impacted by that false dichotomy and what we see as we look at the worship of Israel is that the totality of our life is to be 
that of worship. It's real easy for some people to think, well, with the way you're talking about this, it kind of sounds legalistic. No, it doesn't. Legalism is that we're doing this because, A, we think we're better than everybody else, and that is arrogance, and that's part of the legalism that was manifested by the Pharisees and Sadducees, and thinking that that by living life a certain way with a spiritual focus, that, that somehow we think that that is has made us a better Christian than everybody else. And that shouldn't enter into it either. It doesn't get us any more blessing. It doesn't make us better than anybody else. But it is walking in obedience to the Lord and living a distinct life. And if we go back in the history of Christianity and we look at what was going on in the early church in the Middle Ages and up through the end of the 18th century into the early 19th century, the early 1800s, people in Western civilization were a lot like the Israelites in the Old Testament, that their lives were ordered by the church, by their relationship with God. They structured their lives that way. We didn't have all the distractions that we have today. And so in, in just in terms of family life, it was, if, if you were a faithful believer, then what would take place in the home was that there would be uh, prayers at the table by the Father with all the family around. There would be the reading of Scripture together. There would be this focus on spiritual things, a special preparation on the day, of uh, on Sunday. There would be the setting aside from other distractions. Now, some of the ideas that entered into that did come out of legalism, came out of some wrong-headed ideas that I'll talk about a little bit, as they were applying uh, in an illegitimate way the feasts of Israel and the spiritual life of Israel to the church because they'd been influenced for centuries by replacement theology. And so they, they sort of missed... Uh, the the target a little bit when it came to this, and they were trying to sort of imitate Israel too closely. But the reality was that the 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 point of application from looking at all of this is that God should be much more so the center of our life than He is, especially when you look at a modern secular home and secular family. God is distinct, unique. He is, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our, our ways. That his ways are so much higher than ours, we can't even imagine it. He is totally distinct in all of his attributes. And we are to live in a way that distinguishes us from others, not in an arrogant way or going along thinking that we're somehow better, but focusing more on that mission that God has for us. So as God calls Israel out of slavery in Egypt through the Passover, then they go into the Sinai, down to uh, Mount Sinai. It's a three-month trek, and they get down there. And then God is going to reveal himself to them. And he does, and in that process, he reveals to them the centrality of their worship will be through the tabernacle. And this is sort of God's mobile home that takes him through the through the the desert during those 40 years, and it's not until they get into the land that it becomes somewhat permanent. It's going to become permanent at Shiloh for over 300 years, and then 
Uh, We've studied in Samuel about how the arks traveled around and then comes back and finally David brings the ark into Jerusalem, which is what started us on on this study. But I pointed out last time that the visual image of the tabernacle is what we should think about. It, it's, it's, this graphic is a picture of the individual believer. At the center, uh, if you think about all the 12 tribes, that's who we are as a person. Uh, the, you could think about the surrounding area, that's our body. And at the center of our being is an, in our soul is the dwelling of God the Holy Spirit so that he has made us a temple for the dwelling of Christ. And so that term dwelling is the Hebrew word shakan. The tabernacle was called in Hebrew the mishkan, the dwelling place of God. And so this is a picture for us of the spiritual life in in the church age. God was doing something distinctive now with Israel after the uh, event of the Tower of Babel. He called out Abraham to be the father of a new people through whom he would work to reach all of the nations. He has brought that to a certain point after over 400 years, and he is calling them out with the challenge to that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, we have to understand a little bit about what it means to be a priest. A priest was a go-between between man and God. A priest would represent the people to God. A prophet would represent God to the people. But within this kingdom of priests, Israel was supposed to be a priestly nation that they would be responsible for representing the rest of humanity before God. They would be responsible for the uh, caretaking of the scriptures. They were the custodians of the, of the word of God as revealed to them through the prophets in the Old Testament. And uh, they would be responsible for teaching the other nations just as the priestly tribe, the Levites, would represent the nation to God, would be responsible for teaching and communicating God's word, the scriptures to to the Israelites and that they would be the ones who would watch over and take care of the scriptures and keep that uh, stored and preserved within the uh, within the tabernacle and later within the within the temple. So I didn't finish numbering that slide, uh, renumbering it. What I want to cover tonight is basically four things. We're going to have a little short comment about the priests and that analogy because we are all believer priests. So there's certain analogies or parallels between the priests of the Old Testament and what we're supposed to be doing. But not everything carries over. So there's all kinds of qualifications and characteristics, and that doesn't mean they apply to every uh, believer priest in the church age, but that's what God was doing distinctively uh, for Israel at that time. And then we're going to look at Uh, Last time we looked at the tabernacle, we looked at the furniture in the tabernacle. Now we're going to look at how all of that entered into their worship in terms of these festivals. So we'll look at this. There are three periods in their calendar of these festivals. So we'll look at the spring feasts. There are three. Then there's a summer feast, Pentecost. There's one. And then there's three fall feasts. And so they have a set, set calendar. And so that's important to understand that. One of the problems you get into in the early church is as they're trying to imitate Israel, you have the introduction of priests 
into the early church, which we still see with uh, in certain denominations, Roman Catholics, as well as in Episcopals, they refer to their leaders as priests. We don't have a priesthood anymore other than the priesthood uh, of every believer. They also brought over the idea of the calendar, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but they were utilizing it in uh, too closely with with what was going on with with Israel, and but there is something to be said about about a calendar, and I'll talk about that uh, a little bit later on because all of this, what they did that was good, was that in bringing over a calendar, they understood that the purpose of the calendar in relation to Israel's feasts in the Old Testament was pedagogical. It was designed to remind people of the history they had with God, what God had done for them in the past, and it was used to teach the next generation about who God was, what he had done for Israel, and what he was going to do. So it had it looked at the past history, and it looked toward the future. It, reminded, it reminds us of the proverbial statement that a nation or a people that forgets their past or that has no history destroys their future. And that's exactly what we see happening in Western civilization today is that we see a group of people, a civilization that is rewriting their history according to political correctness, that is now making up their own past to fit their modern values instead of understanding history objectively. And the result of that is it's cutting us off from our past and see, this election is is indicative of that. People want to, they want to. Too many people want to flee the Constitution. They look at the Constitution as some kind of straitjacket that just a bunch of old uh, white men made up back in the 18th century with no understanding whatsoever of what was involved in it. And they want to get rid of it and just go their own way now. And as a result, if that happens culturally, it destroys our past and it will destroy. Uh, our, our future. So we look at these feasts, and then the culmination is in the fall feasts, uh, which will focus on Yom Kippur. It sort of surrounds and looks at that particular area. So first of all, uh, to look at the priests, and the key passage for this is in Leviticus chapter 8, and you can read through that at some other time, but I just want to summarize this. And first of all, I want to remind you that the rituals in the Mosaic Law, the rituals related to the tabernacle and later the temple, were all designed as training aids. They're not talking about that, I call it the real spiritual life versus the ritual life. And by that I mean, uh, I'll just take confession as an example. If you're David and you're out with the sheep and you sin then you just confess your sin. But God will forgive you at that point, as we'll see with a couple of verses in a minute. God forgives at that point. That's your real spiritual life, and you maintain your ongoing communion and fellowship with God. But then the next time, this may be in January, and the next time you go to Jerusalem to the temple, which would be Passover coming up probably at the end of March or in April, then you have to complete the process ritually 
and bring a lamb and bring that and sacrifice and put your head on the hand on the head of the lamb and confess your sin to God. And then that process is completed by the ritual. It doesn't mean you weren't forgiven initially. You are forgiven, but it, it's, it's a package deal. And so for you to be able to worship the next time in the temple, you have, you, even though you're truly and really uh, forgiven at the time you confess the sin, now in order to worship ritually in the temple, you have to have ritual forgiveness. So you have real forgiveness and ritual forgiveness, and the ritual forgiveness is depicted through these images of sacrifice, placing your hand on the head of the animal in order to uh, communicate in a more vivid, dramatic way what is happening invisibly in the spiritual realm. And we just can't imagine how dramatic that would be that when you come to worship God at, at Passover and you bring, you have to bring a, a, a sin offering or a purification offering and bring this lamb that you've watched to make sure it's without spot or blemish and, and you've taken care of it from birth and you bring this lamb and that lamb hasn't done anything but because you uh, gossiped or slandered or um, did some other sin, then now you have to kill this innocent lamb. And what a vivid picture of what ha- will happen at the cross. And that's what that's de- designed to be. And so when we think about it that way, what we see with the priests is they too are are a physical picture ri- designed to teach something ritually, through ritual, of a spiritual reality. The priests had didn't have a lot of qualifications. They did not have spiritual qualifications. You won't read anywhere that a priest had to be a believer. In fact, there were many priests who had no clue what was going on in the Pentateuch, and they were either false priests or they were just ignorant priests, which happened a lot during the period of the judges. And But they, they could be a priest because they were physically qualified because, A, they were descendants of Levi. They were thus related to Moses and Aaron. They weren't only the high priest had to be a descendant of Aaron, but they are only uh, physically related to Levi, so that would qualify them to be a priest. But that's not the only thing. The priest had to be uh, qualified in terms of his physical condition. He could not be disfigured, he, and that, that's because disfigurement or if he was like like let's say if he had a hair lip or a club foot or he was crippled in some way that is reflective of being uh in a sinful world in a corrupt world in a fallen world so it's not that he's committed a sin and therefore he can't be a priest but he is a visual representation through his disfigurement of the impact of sin on the world, and so therefore that would disqualify him. So the blind, the lame, the deformed, those with a broken foot or a broken hand uh, would not be allowed to serve as a priest. Uh, If they had touched a corpse, 
they would not be qualified. Now, that's not a sin. They were allowed to to teach to touch a corpse if it was a close family member, mother, father, sister, brother, but uh, not someone else. And uh, they also could not cut their hair a certain way or cut their beards a certain way because that was how the pagan priests wore their hair and and trimmed their beards. So uh, that was prohibited. And they couldn't wear clothes or robes like pagan priests. They were to be what? What's the word? Set apart, distinct. So they wore distinctive robes and they wore uh, had a distinctive uh, haircut and a distinctive uh, cut of their beard that was not like uh, anyone else. There were also restrictions on their marriage. They couldn't marry a woman who had been a prostitute or who was ritually defiled or who was divorced. And so uh, as a result of that, they were distinct from others because in the pagan priests, they would often marry the uh, cultic prostitutes. And so they're, they're, God is drawing a distinction between the lifestyle of the priest in the temple or tabernacle and the lifestyle of, of pagan priests. In Leviticus 21.8, we read, and in, uh, I think I said eight, Leviticus 8 earlier, in Leviticus 21.8, uh, I think it's 21, um, also talks about this. In Leviticus 8, you have several passages that talk about uh, being holy. In Leviticus 21.8, uh, we have the statement, Therefore you shall consecrate him, that is the priest, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. So here we see the emphasis here is on the presentation and offering of the bread, which is eaten. And so what does that represent? That represents communion or fellowship with God. In the peace offerings, as I talked about last time, there, that was a meal, and you would sit down, and you would eat the meal, and you would talk, and you would give thanks to God, and you would reflect upon what God had provided for you. And it was a time of praise where you were enjoying that communion, that fellowship with God. And so uh, that symbolically, the priest is supposed to be distinct because he is the one who is pulling together, as it were, this dinner party with God. And so he has to be distinct and and ritually uh, undefiled in his, in his conduct. So that describes the priest. The priest was to be consecrated initially. We might think of this something akin to ordination. Ordination is not something that's talked about in the Scripture, but it is built off of a scriptural pattern and ideal. Leviticus 8 describes this consecration service. Aaron and his sons were taken by Moses, and first they were washed from head to toe. And then, and this pictures the total cleansing that occurs at salvation when we're completely washed and we are positionally uh, cleansed of our sin. Uh, following this, there was never another ritual where they would be completely washed. If there was sin, that was taken care of by washing the hands or washing the feet when they came in and they went to the uh, went to the labor. This is depicted in the New Testament in John chapter thirteen. 
the switch on the microphone is so sensitive, if I move too fast, it jog, it knocks it down. So we need to make it a little stiffer. Okay, John chapter 13, Jesus is washing the feet, and you get all kinds of people think that the whole idea there is being a servant. That only in a broad, general way. It is teaching about confession and forgiveness, which is central to being able to love one another, which is where the pa- the passage goes in John 13, 34, and 35. So Jesus is washing Peter's feet. Peter says, no, 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 no. You know, in his arrogance, you're not going to wash my feet. And uh, so Jesus says to him in verse 10, he who is bathed, that is completely washed, uh, re- and that represents positional cleansing. The person who is bathed or, 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 or completely washed needs only to wash his feet, which mean, which indicate just confession, that is experiential cleansing, but is completely clean. And he says, and you all, now this is in the setting up for the Seder meal. He says, you all, referring to the other 11, you all are clean, that is positionally meaning they're all believers and they're positionally clean except for one, and that's Judas Iscariot. Because the point was, as he started to wash Peter's feet, Peter says, you can't do that, Lord. I'm not going to let you. And and the Lord said, well, Peter, if you don't let me do this, then you won't have any inheritance when I come in the kingdom. You won't have a role in the kingdom. And then Peter responds uh, gregariously, well, Lord, wash me all over. So the Lord says, I don't need to do that either because if you're already clean, you don't need to be washed again and you're all already clean. So it's a clear statement that, and the language here that's used in terms of the, the two Greek verbs that are used, uh, luo for complete washing and nipto for partial washing, the same words used in the passages in Exodus and Leviticus for the complete washing versus the partial washing of the hands uh, for the priests. And so this is a picture to understand the importance of regular cleansing from sin in the Old Testament in order to enjoy communion with God. Uh, Following this, um, Moses would then dress Aaron and dressed him in his tunic, his robe, his ephod, his breastplate, the Urim and Thummim, and the turban. And then as they dressed him this way, and these were beautiful robes with incredible mix of colors that were rich reds and blues and purples and gold. All of this would be, symbolize the glory and the beauty of the Lord. So it was something that was aesthetically extravagant. Now, this wasn't for every worship center in every little village and or later every synagogue but this was for the temple this was for the dwelling place of god and so the priest has to be properly dressed or equipped to carry out his ministry just as the believer priest today has to be properly equipped for the service of ministry this is what paul is getting at in ephesians 4:10 through 12 that God gave these gifts, the gifts of apostle and prophet, evangelist and pastor and teacher, in order to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry because they are believer priests and should do that. So they have to be properly equipped. 
Other passages in the New Testament, like Romans thirteen fourteen, talk about being clothed with Christ, picks up on that same imagery from the clothing of the priests. We're to put on good deeds in Colossians three twelve. We are clothed with the righteous acts of the saints in Revelation nineteen seven to eight. This is the dress, proper dress of the church age believer. So after Moses dressed Aaron, the high priest, then he goes in and anoints all of the furniture with oil. And then last he comes out and he anoints Aaron with oil. And then they move to his, his sons. Now the anointing with oil represented the power of God and that they had the authority to represent God and to serve God in the temple. And so when we get to the New Testament, and we talk in 1 John 2.20 about being anointed by the Spirit, this just indicates that every believer has the authority and the responsibility to serve God and to uh, carry out his his plan in their life. It indicates we're set apart as believer priests and we have the authority to serve uh, in that capacity and that means to witness to unbelievers and to encourage believers in their spiritual growth. So all of this indicated that Aaron and his sons were set apart for the service of God. So then uh, uh, Moses went to them and he dressed them uh, and then following this, there was a purification offering, uh, sometimes called a sin offering. First of all, they killed a bull, and they uh, then uh, they would put their hands on the head of the bull for identification that this bull is now going to bear their sin. And then after they uh, slaughtered the bull, they would put the blood, the bull's blood on the horns of the altar, and then it would be... Uh, splashed against the base of the altar. The fat and the entrails would then be burned on the altar. And and if you don't have a fat bull, then it indicates that he hasn't prospered, didn't have enough food. See, a fat bull indicates God has given him lots of food, and so he's been richly blessed. And that which symbolizes the blessing is his fat. And so the fat doesn't go to the worshiper. It's burned up for God as a tribute to God's blessing in the past. So this sacrifice sets them apart for the service of God, just as believers today are set apart to the service of God by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. This was then followed after the bull, offering of the bull by an offering of a ram, and then a second ram was sacrificed as a fellowship offering with God, concluding this series of offerings with now they are in a position to enjoy that communion, to enjoy that fellowship with God. That's always the the end result. Now, I want you to think about this. You ought to go back and read Leviticus 8 as it describes the process. This took a long time. They take the bull. They have to bring the bull to the right location. They slit the bull's throat. Then they have to uh, eviscerate the bull. They have to split him open. They have to remove all of the entrails. They have to cut out all of the fatty portions. Uh, They have to wash all of that out. And then they will take him and put him on the altar and then put the fat on the altar. And all of that gets, gets burned up as a burnt offering 
all of this took a lot of time. If you've ever been hunting, you know that just just to skin out a deer uh, takes you, you know, maybe an hour to do all of that that work. So this is what they're doing. It took a lot of time. And we read through it very quickly. And what you need to do is stop and pause and think about this. See, we have all these different sacrifices that are talked about then. We don't have to do that today. All of that focuses on Christ. But we're in such a hurry. We just want to skip through it. Well, blah, 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 blah. And we run, run to the next thing. And we don't stop and think about what each of these sacrifices is teaching us and reminding us about what Christ did on the cross because he's the fulfillment of each of those different sacrificial uh, offerings. And so what this teaches us is that we too are set apart to the Lord by sacrifice. And just as this ritual set Aaron and his sons apart to serve as priests and set other priests apart to serve God as priests. So we have been set apart and we need to take that time because it enriches our personal understanding of who we are in Christ and what our position is. And that's necessary to fulfill the the whole concept in Revelation I mean, excuse me, Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2, we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. Like turgos is the Greek word there where we get our word liturgy. It's our worship, personal worship of God. So what we see conceptually is that the nation came to Sinai where they're going to be set apart by God. Initially, we see this hostile environment. God is in a cloud, there's lightning, there's thunder, there's earthquake. And then God gives the covenant uh, to Moses in uh, Exodus 20, 21, 22, 23. And then when we get to chapter uh, 24, uh, God uh, calls the Moses and the elders up on the mountain And the covenant is given, and the people are asked again, are you going to obey the covenant? And they say, yes, we will. And so then they worship God, and they they see God. They see the pavement under the throne, and there's, there's blue sky. There's no dark cloud. There's no thunder. There's no darkness. There's no lightning, uh, none of those things. And this is a picture of the positional sanctification of the believer, uh, where we are, it's uh, analogous to our being put in Christ and identified with Christ. And then following that, uh, at that time, well, really at that time, they have the fellowship sacrifices. There's no, uh, there, there's no sin offering at that time. There's no purification offering because they are in re- relationship to God, in communion, in fellowship with God. And then what happens? Moses is still up on the mountain getting getting instructions, and the people get get bored after 40 days, and they call upon Aaron to uh, build an uh, uh, an idol and the golden calf, and they just sin horribly before God. And then God, after that, God gives them instructions for the temple because they have to learn that, look, we're still horrible, corrupt sinners, and we have to have something that will 
uh, cleanse us so that we can be restored to our communion, our fellowship uh, with God. And so God gives those deeply flawed people this, this tabernacle, which is where he's going to dwell for this constant reminder uh, through ritual of how we are restored to fellowship with God. It is a picture of the removal of all the barriers that occur because of sin, the barriers between us and God. And so we look at that tabernacle as the dwelling place of God, a place that is characterized, we saw, symbolized the the light of the of the uh, menorah, the candlestick. Uh, the, the the menorah there is is a picture of light and life, and the bread is a picture of life and all of the nourishment that God provides uh, for for life. And then uh, that God, it, it's a picture. God provides all of the good things. Uh, of life graciously, and we're, we're the beneficiaries of his blessing. And all of that is fulfilled in Christ. He is the one who is both the uh, light of the world, and he is the life, as he says on several occasions, I am the life. And he is the source of light and life for us. He is the one who reveals God to us. But Jesus, as God, is also set apart and distinct, and he calls us to be set apart and distinct because as church-age believers, we are in him, and he is divine, and we serve him. Uh, He's the one who sets us apart uh, through his sacrifice on the cross. So what we see in all of this are these key features that are repeated again and again and expanded upon in relation to worship. There's the proclamation of God's word. There is the element of sacrifice and a blood sacrifice and the death of an animal because of our sin. There's the emphasis on being positionally sanctified and set apart to God as well as experiential sanctification. There's a provision through certain offerings for a restoration of fellowship and a deep communion with God. So we see that there is a an experiential cleansing and so that we can fulfill our priestly role to serve God. So so all of these elements are there, and, and we see them repeated again and again from dispensation to dispensation. It's not that when Jesus comes, it, stop, it stops the sacrifices, but it doesn't stop the underlying principles that are being illustrated. In Psalm 32.5, we have the, uh, David's confession. Uh, he confesses in Psalm 51, that's the penitential psalm, but in Psalm 32, he is giving a praise psalm because God forgave him, and he reiterates why God forgave him, and he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. That's what it means to confess, not just to list a list of sins. Some people get that idea that if I just name what I did, and they just sort of run through a quick grocery list of sins. No, uh, that that's not entering into what's going on here. Confession is, Lord, I did this. I did that. I did this other thing. I am admitting and acknowledging that I am a sinner, and these are the sins I committed. It's personal. It's not just reading off some grocery list. Um, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. Now, David doesn't need to go into details listing what he did. He's stating it uh, generally. I hear That's the other problem I hear is people say, well, all I need to do is say, Lord, I'm a sinner. 
No, the principles in Scripture are you confess your, your sins, not somebody else's sins, not some abstract grocery list of sins, but you confess what you did. You admit to it. And this is what he said, I will confess my transgression, so you can just leave that blank and put in there whatever your sins are. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and the result is, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So this is what is uh, the background that we have for, for the role of the priest. Now, the priest is a central figure in all of these feasts because what happens in these feasts is Israel is going to come together at these three key times of the year. They're going to come together in the spring at the spring feast. There's three of them, and they all occur within uh, a seven, uh, actually it's about a 10-day period. And then there is the Feast of Pentecost in the summer. That's the second one. And then the third one has to do with the fall feast, and that involves a little over three weeks that they would be away from their homes, away from their farms, away from their businesses in Jerusalem, and there they are uh, celebrating them. So the purpose for these feasts is to teach them to keep their focus on the Lord, that God is the center of their life and the center of should be the center of everything. So it would these these when did they have these these sacrifices? There's a morning sacrifice and there's an evening sacrifice in the temple. That is to sanctify each day, that each day comes from the Lord and each day that we live belongs to the Lord. He has redeemed us, and that's why we are to redeem the time. So the feasts were to teach us to uh, teach them to focus on the Lord day by day, and also week by week, because on the seventh day was a day of rest. Now, that wasn't a day to just go play ping pong or watch sports all day or just uh, give in to all your little personal pleasures. It was a time to enjoy God's creation. The pattern of God's creation is as a craftsman, he designs the earth uh, in six days. And at the end, he stops. Now, he doesn't go take a nap because he's tired. He rests to do what? To enjoy what he has done. So the pattern for us is that whatever happens on that seventh day in Shabbat, it, isn't, uh, it wasn't designed to be a day of uh, catching up on your sleep or other things of that nature, just, just sitting around and being lazy, but to use that to enjoy God's creation, to do something different from the work that you do, the labor that you do, the other six days of the week to expand your understanding through reading, through study, through conversation, uh, through the worship of the Lord. So every day belongs to the Lord. Every week belongs to the Lord. Every month belongs to the Lord because every month there were new moon sacrifices. So it's a reminder that every month belongs to the Lord. And then these annual feasts or festivals were given to Israel to remind them that every season of the year, the entire year, uh, belongs to the Lord. And on the basis of this calendar, they were to order their lives. They didn't think in terms of, of months and days like we do. That's a result of the secularization of the calendar. 
Up until that happens in the Enlightenment, people thought in terms of the annual calendar in terms of of the church calendar. Uh, because the church calendar by the late Middle Ages was quite extensive, and so you had you had Easter, and then you had they would still, in fact, in some Catholic churches they still uh, have special services at Pentecost, special services at many of these other days. They have John the Baptist Day and all of these others, which I think goes too far. But but the point was in Israel, each of these. Periods they would order their lives in relation to Passover, first fruits, Pentecost, uh, the day, uh, the feast of the trumpets, the day of atonement, and so that their their life is ordered and structured by their relationship to God. And so they don't think of it in terms of well, that's in December, that's in February, or that's in June. It has to do with something significant in their in their spiritual life. And at the center of that was these three feast periods where they would go to Jerusalem these three times a year, and there they would worship the Lord, and at the center of that is going to be sacrifice and the death of an animal, just a constant reminder of the need for cleansing uh, cleansing from sin. And so when they came to the tabernacle and later to the temple, they would see the glories of this. They would see colors, vibrant, rich colors like they didn't see anywhere else. And that remind them of the majesty of God. That would remind them of the glory of God and remind them of the sanctuary that they had lost in Eden, how they were separated from God, the imagery of the cherubs that we've talked about, and how God was now dwelling once again among humanity and he provided a way to be restored and come back into uh, his presence. Now, in the church age, we have the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer and provides a dwelling place for the indwelling of Jesus Christ so that we individually become a temple. And when we corporately come together, according to Ephesians chapter 2, we are being grown together as a temple of God. I think I misspoke, Ephesians 3. We're being grown together as a temple to God. So it's an emphasis not only individually. When you have a 100 sanctuaries, and they're all scattered around during the week, when they come together on Sunday morning and you have a 100 sanctuaries here, what do you think that makes this? It's significant, and we need to, you know, let our thinking be shaped uh, by this. So for Israel, once again, God is living among the humanity, but this time he's setting them up as a kingdom of priests. And so they have a special worship. And so when they would gather together, it was a time of great celebration. We don't know how many people live in Jerusalem for example, during the time of David or, or later on during the time of Hezekiah, uh, probably several thousand wasn't a huge number. At the time of Jesus in the first century, there were about 100 to 120,000 people who lived in Jerusalem. When Passover occurred, according to Josephus and also according to a Roman historian, Tacitus, the population in Jerusalem would expand to about one and a half to two million people. I misspoke, two and a half to three million people, 
Can you imagine that? That's huge. The, the, the rabbis would have to uh, artificially expand the boundaries of Israel for the feast days, I mean, for, of the city for the feast days, so that those who were living in the in in the city limits of Jerusalem could eat the Passover meal in the city limits where the where the lamb was slaughtered, and so they would create an expanded uh, city limits during uh, during that time. But that's an enormous number of people. Now, what do you think happens when everybody has been working for three or four months on the farm and they've been laboring and out there digging the rocks out of the ground and and hoeing out all of the weeds and carrying water and the harvest comes and the harvest is over with and now you you hear what the what the psalmist says, uh, that it's with joy, let us go to the house of the Lord and celebrate with joy. Yeah, you're going to celebrate with joy because you get three weeks off, okay? It's going to be a two- or three-week vacation, depending on which part of the year it is. And what are you going to do? You're going to be with your friends. You're going to be with family, an extended family you haven't seen in maybe six months since uh, since the last uh, feast time, and you're going to come together. And what do you do? We're getting ready to have Thanksgiving in, in a couple of weeks. What are you going to do? You're going to get with family or friends, and you're going to sit down, and there's going to be a whole lot of food, five times more than everybody there could eat. And you're going to talk and you're going to reminisce and you're going to enjoy being with each other. And it's all about fa- family time together, if possible. And you're going to have, uh, have a great celebration and you're going to eat a lot. And there's going to be great fellowship. That's what's happening. But it's for, for example, at Passover, that's going to go on for about 10 or 12 days. If it's in the, in the fall, it's going to go on for three weeks. And you're going to be spending that time. There's going to be singing. There's going to be rejoicing. People are going to take time to be going up into the uh, temple area, and the priests will be standing there, and they'll be uh, teaching scripture or reading scripture, and there'll be the sacrifices, and you've got all of the different sights and smells and sounds that are there. And there's going to be this central focus is on on worship, and every day. There's going to be a number of sacrifices that are going to be taken, taking place, reminding everyone of sin and God's grace and how he has provided a solution to his grace. Worship was rich. We, we need to expand our thoughts about this. I don't know what you think about when you, re, when you reflect on what this looked like. This was like coming to Houston at the time of rodeo for three weeks. You just have all kinds of things going on, and there's booths that are set up down at the stock show, and people can go by and see different things and and uh, and eat different things. That's what it was like. It was a festive atmosphere as well as a, a serious atmosphere. And so when we bring this over into the church age, we see we see similar things that are present, in, in talking about worship, Ephesians 5.18, uh, Paul says, Don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. What are the results of being filled with the Spirit? Well, the first thing mentioned here is speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing 
and rejoicing in song about what God has done. And we know what the songs were like. We have the psalm book. We have 150 psalms giving us the idea of the level of theological content that was in the songs uh, that they sang and also giving thanks. So this is crucial to what was going on uh, in their in their worship. And so this is the background to understand what's happening in the, the spring fe- feast. So there's three of them. There's Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits. Passover pictures redemption. It is centered on the sacrifice of the lamb that is without spot or blemish, the application of the blood of that lamb historically at the original exodus to the doorpost of the house, indicating that that lamb has died as a substitute for the firstborn in that house, and that that blood being applied is a recognition that the people in that house are trusting in God's provision of a substitute so that the firstborn will not die. That is the first uh, first Passover. And so as they look at that, they're reminded of what happened, that at that time they, they roasted the lamb, they ate it, they ate it standing up, they had unleavened bread because they didn't have time that, that God was going to release them uh, from their slavery that night and they would be able to leave and so they were prepared and so they didn't have time for the dough to rise and go through uh, all of those other things and then they would um, uh, then they would 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 eat and enjoy that fellowship that's part of the meal that's going on there they're eating that meal there were bitter herbs that were later to remind them of the bitterness of their of their slavery so the Passover focuses on the fact that there is redemption. Now, right before Passover, right before Passover, they would, um, right before Passover, they would clean out the house of all the leaven. That's because Passover ends at sunset and that's begins the first day of unleavened bread. So you wouldn't be doing all this work on Passover day. So they clean it out ahead of time. And the picture that comes across is that the person who's redeemed on Passover is now going to live a life free of sin, in the, and that's what's pictured in the festival. So you have the same distinction we see all the time in Scripture, that you have redemption is separated from sanctification. Redemption is the point of salvation when we trust in Christ, and sanctification is living out our spiritual life because we have been redeemed. And so God redeemed Israel in the Exodus event, and then they are to live as a redeemed people, and that's what the law was all about, is teaching a redeemed people how they were to live and how they were to worship God. Um, when they would go up to the, to, the, to the festivals, they would go up at the time of Passover. Remember what happens when Jesus goes into, uh, into uh, Jerusalem? It's at the beginning of the week, and he goes in, and there are crowds that are there, and they're singing. They're singing Hoshe'anu, which is uh, talking about God deliver us and God save us, and it comes from Psalm 118, and they are singing this to God. So it's a, it's a
It's a joyful time that God is going to uh, uh, deliver them. And so there's all of this singing that's going on. So you see this reflected in some of the some of the Psalms, like Psalm 42.4. When I remember these things, that is, the psalmist is ref- thinking back upon his times at uh, in Jerusalem during the feast days. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. This isn't just a handful of people going to the Temple Mount. With the multitude, with, with thousands of people. Uh, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. And Psalm 100 verse 4, enter into his gates with thanksgiving. That's entering into the gates of the temple and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. That means to give praise to him. And there's one section in the uh, in the Psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. Each of these Psalms begins with the statement, a song of ascents. You know what that means? These were sung as the people are coming to Jerusalem. What do you do to go to Jerusalem? You go up to Jerusalem. They're ascending to Jerusalem. As, as they're coming along, as the Lord is walking up, uh, the the road of Adumim there from Jericho to Jerusalem before the uh, triumphal entry, uh, Palm Sunday, the, the the people along the way would be singing these songs as they're going. They're going to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. It's a great feast time. They want to get there a little early because if you've got uh, Jerusalem is going to go from a hundred thousand to two and a half to three million. You better get there in. A, early to find a good place to put your tent and for the family to stay for the next uh, 10 or 12 days. And so they would be singing this as there, as you would go to the temple to worship, you would sing these hymns. They would have learned them, memorized them, be able to sing them from, uh, from childhood. Well, at Passover, we have the application of this to the church age in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. Therefore, Paul says, now, 1 Corinthians 5. Y'all remember what's going on in 1 Corinthians 5? 1 Corinthians 5 is when Paul is uh, castigating. That means he's rebuking. It's not politically correct anymore to do that. He's rebuking the people because of their casual attitude towards sin. There's a man in the church who's committing incense, and they're just acting like it's no big deal. Uh, We might have a little trouble with it. He was married to a stepmother. In our culture, that's not bad, but in that culture, that even offended the pagans. And this was pagan Corinthians who were pretty immoral. So they're just ignoring everybody's sins, and everybody's having a great uh, immoral time. And so what Paul is doing after he rebukes them for this in the first six verses, he says, therefore, purge out the leaven. Leaven represents sin. In other words, there needs to be a cleansing of sin in your life that you may be a new lump. Now, they're already believers, so this isn't talking about some sort of moral reformation to be saved. This is talking about being cleansed of sin, confessing sin and dealing with it, not just saying, okay, I confess my sin and then keep doing it. 
that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. What's that talking about? That's your position in Christ. Uh, Paul says it differently in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, you are, uh, you are children of light. That's your position. Walk as children of light. In other words, you know, you're, you may be in the Smith family. Your father says, you're a Smith. Now qu- start living like you're a Smith. Okay, quit living like those kids down the street and live like you're part of this family. That's what Paul's talking about here is you've got a new position in Christ and you need to live uh, consistent with that. You truly are unleavened. Why? For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And then he says, therefore, let us keep the feast. What feast is he talking about? He's applying the imagery from the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the post-salvation life of the believer, that we are to live that life. And it takes a long time to do this. You're not going to just wake up one morning and say, okay, I'm going to quit all my sins. I'm going to clean up my life and I'm going to give it up. No, that doesn't happen. Uh, But it's a process of our spiritual growth. He says, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, not with those sins we're real comfortable with, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's just using that imagery from the feast of unleavened bread to say, you know, clean up your life, confess your sins, uh, quit doing the sins that you're doing, now, you're not going to get quit it all at one time, but, but hopefully over time we're going to get better and better through God the Holy Spirit as we walk with him. So that takes us through the spring feasts, and next time we'll come back and look at the rest of the feast. Now, the reason I'm doing this is to set us up for understanding what happens to the worship in Israel as we go through the rest of the Old Testament. We can cover that pretty rapidly. There's only two or three things I want to talk about. And then uh, one of the things we're going to focus on is how worship gets corrupted. It's corrupted today. It gets corrupted periodically through history. It got corrupted several times. In Israel, it was corrupted at the time of Christ. But we have to understand that there's worship that is valid and legitimate and worship that is not. And then that finally sets us up for understanding the unique worship of the church-age believer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that, that you need to be at the center of every day, the center of every week, the center of every month, the center of every year. We have been bought with a price, Paul says. Therefore, we are not our own. We're not here to live out our desires, to live out our wishes, to live for our personal pleasure and enjoyment. We are here to serve you. That doesn't mean we can't have a fun time and enjoy uh, the life that you've given us, but that, that we have a purpose. We have a significance. We have a mission, and that is to shine forth as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Father, help us to understand this, to focus, to think more deeply, more seriously, more significantly about the life that we should be living as believers, as members of your royal family. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.